This evening I want to talk about and explore uh, the relationship of concentration or samadhi practice and insight practice and take some time to continue to go more deeply into the nature of samadhi practice, but also begin to make the link with the practices which will start tomorrow, which are under the rubric of insight practice. And particularly focused on these three ways of seeing more deeply, three ways of seeing which tend to free us, liberate us, And those are particularly to uh, be able to see more clearly impermanence, uh, dukkha or reactivity or unreliability, and thirdly, uh, anatta, usually translated as not-self. So I want to take a little more time to um, talk about samadhi practice, then talk about the relationship between samadhi practice and insight practice, give a brief overview of those three ways of seeing and give a little more focused attention to impermanence, which is what we'll begin to practice with tomorrow. And then Brian, uh, tomorrow night, will give a little more attention to dukkha and anatta, or uh, not-self. And again, we're... Uh, offering these explorations in the context of the structure of this retreat, which goes into these three main forms of practice, samadhi practice, insight practice, organized around these three ways, and then thirdly, the practice that opens to a kind of spacious awareness or what we might sometimes call awakened awareness. And these three areas are really arguably at the center of our practice. And yet, surprisingly, there's not as much uh, deep focus often in retreats. We partly want to establish a foundation. And so I think we're we're pleased to be able to uh, offer this. And there's a kind of a movement, a kind of a sequence, where on the basis of samadhi practice, we move into insight practice, and on the basis of both samadhi practice and insight practice, supported by metta and body practices like qigong, we then move into that awakened awareness. And so there's a kind of a a map of a sequence of development that we'll be uh, um, offering, really. And I'll be making some comments that that sort of thread through these different kinds of practices. And although we'll be shifting to bring in insight practice tomorrow, as I've mentioned before, we're going to be continuing with samadhi practice. You know, a typical session might start with a period of samadhi practice tomorrow, for example, and then we might go into uh, aspects of insight practice. So a little bit more on um, samadhi practice and the nature of samadhi. Uh, I thought it might be helpful to bring in some other uh, translations that people have given. Again, we've tended to prefer not uh, the uh, the translation of samadhi as concentration. 
it can be misleading. You'll find that in all the texts, though. You'll find that. And some other uh, translations uh, could be single-pointedness or uh, that unification of mind and heart and body. Uh, some other translations that I think are helpful uh, are uh, composure as a translation of samadhi for steadying the mind, for steadying our, really steadying our being. Uh, Richard Shankman, who sometimes teaches here and has written uh, a very good book entitled Samadhi, uh, translates it as a more, not so much a, a one-word translation, but he talks about unifying the mind in steady, undistracted awareness. That's really what we're, what we're up to, unifying the mind, and I think I would add the heart and the body, in steady, undistracted awareness. That's what we're developing. And it's interesting, it's really a, a natural quality. You know, we, we need training in samadhi, but like almost everything, we are taking a natural quality and developing it further. I remember sometimes watching here at Spirit Rock, uh, sometimes there are herons who come here, and watching the herons extremely intent on some possible lunch. <laughs> you know, and the samadhi is deep, <laughs> right? Or uh, actually the poet uh, Gary Snyder speculates that samadhi practice actually may come out of uh, early human beings needing to be very concentrated for hunting and still, and not making noise for uh, the beings they were hunting. And there's a very ordinary uh, sense of samadhi that I think we experience a lot, you know, where we can be very focused on a task. And one of my memories of samadhi uh, was of being in college, and normally I did not pull what are called all-nighters, Maybe some of you did. I didn't do that very much, but I remember once near the end of my college time, uh, I did uh, stay up all night to do writing, and I got into this groove of writing where there was no time, and I was just with this process for hours. And it was something I hadn't experienced in that way. And I remember greeting dawn in a deeply altered state. Very, very interesting. You know, like just the samadhi was very, very strong and it was a very striking experience. And I'm, I'm sure most of us have had something like that occur. And so, so here we're training, as it were, a natural capacity. And of course it's a natural capacity, but there's also the many ways in our ordinary experience where uh, that samadhi becomes very difficult because of some of what I mentioned this morning, levels of distraction, levels of uh, just going all over the place, uh, habitual thinking and so forth that can make samadhi at times hard. This is a poem that uh, I kind of took from a conversation with my mother, Bernice. Uh, And she Uh, liked to meditate with me, and she would always say, I just want to do concentration practice. (laughs) Um, 
I was interested repeatedly over quite a number of years. Just, just she didn't use the word samadhi, but just, just concentration, you know. And so we would, we would do that. And she was a musician, and she uh, spoke about uh, uh, music really being her concentration practice. And this is a little poem that I kind of wrote from our conversations. My mother Bernice says that music is her concentration practice. In giving a concert, if there is a sense of self or of how one's doing. It's not good, she says. You have to let yourself be taken over by the music. May we all be taken over by the music. And, that's, that's, and for us, the breath is the music or some other object. And can you let yourself be taken over the, by the breath? So you see, in that, there is somewhat of an understanding of that, uh, let the breath take you. I think, as, was that your phrase, Brian? Or let the breath find you. Yeah, I think that was, that was a phrase you used. Or that sense of uh, receptive effort, letting, letting oneself be taken over, or a kind of surrender. You can, find, you can see that there. This is from the Buddha. There comes a time when one's mind becomes inwardly steadied, composed, unified, and concentrated. That concentration is then calm and refined. It has attained to full tranquility and achieved mental unification. It is not maintained by strenuous suppression of the defilements. Where we would say, uh, we don't have to really uh, so much worry about distraction, reactivity, agitation. There's a kind of a natural samadhi that develops. Again, I think we've all experienced this at certain times in natural settings. little bit about the different forms of samadhi practice. Uh, the ones that we're doing really come from the original teachings of the Buddha and then fairly simple, just bringing the attention to one object. And he practiced, as many of you know, the traditional yogic forms of the time, what we would now call Hindu tradition. And he practiced those uh, in depth. Uh, in those frameworks, they were said to be the final way for freedom. He found he could get to the depths of samadhi and still have some suffering. You know, that it was, didn't take care of everything. And that's where, that was really his great innovation. But he kept the samadhi practice as a great tool. And this is what we'll see more of in talking about the relation insight practice. He kept the, kept the samadhi practice as a means that helps us come to insight. You find, we find samadhi practices in almost all traditions, different versions of them. It can be, and again, there can be multiple objects. In the Vasudhimaga, uh, which was a systematization in the fifth century of the forms of uh, Buddhist practice, especially in the Theravada tradition, um, there are said to be 40 possible objects of concentration. And they, would in, they include the heart practices like metta or compassion or joy or equanimity. And they include all sorts of other ways of deepening concentration. A lot of them were looking at uh, a disc, which could be of different colors, eyes open, bringing one's attention to a colored disc called kasina. It's one form of practice, uh, which one can still do. Uh, other traditions, one might look at a candle. And so there are these 
there are these multiple forms. Uh, chanting can be a form of concentration practice. I have a friend whose practice is to chant all the time. Very similar, but different, right? Some forms of visualization. So we're working with one way of developing samadhi. And particularly, and the breath was the method that the Buddha used in his own practice. He said, uh, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit. I too, before my enlightenment, (laughs) while I was still a bodhisattva, not yet fully enlightened, generally dwelt in that dwelling. (laughs) That's what he said. And I think it's helpful also to, to point to some of the fruits of samadhi practice. It is difficult. In a way, we may find that these first two days, uh, in terms of practice, may be the most challenging of the whole retreat. In other words, it's kind of downhill from now. <laughs> a little bit. But we'll be continuing to develop the, the samadhi. So helpful to see what some of the benefits are that... Uh, we learn better how to steady the mind, settle the mind, the attention, so we are not so caught in reactivity. We can see more clearly the different forms of repetitive thinking, can notice them uh, more quickly. There can be a quality of a pleasure that that Brian pointed to quite a bit that can can be very interesting Uh, can be really a source of, uh, kind of a source of refuge and can be this connection between pleasure and happiness and samadhi is quite interesting. Again, as Brian was saying, in a lot of the texts, there are pointing to the fact that uh, pleasure and contentment and even one of the texts talk about delight and happiness are often uh, important foundations for samadhi. Interesting, isn't it? That, that quality of contentment and happiness. And one of the fruits of, the, that, of samadhi practice is a certain kind of bliss which can be quite stable. It can also give us a sense, which I think is helpful, of these deep inner uh, resources of, of pleasure and happiness, which can make us less needing to look with grasping outside for pleasure. When we know that there are these deep resources of well-being, of happiness and pleasure, which are our birthright, we may actually reevaluate some of our actions and even our priorities. When concentration or samadhi is strong, we can actually suppress uh, reactivity or unskillful thoughts. Typically, though, that is, that is temporary. And that's why the insight practice is necessary. So when we have strong samadhi, we can actually be quite uh, uh, able to shift away from places we're caught or stuck. And it's, it's a great virtue. Um, and we can use samadhi in that way as a kind of antidote to difficult states. You know? And uh, for, so, for example, uh, if one wakes up in the middle of the night, 
and starts going into a negative pattern. Maybe something difficult has happened the day before. If the samadhi is sufficiently developed, you can say, this is not a good time for (laughs) self-judgment. This is not a good time to get into repetitive, self-lacerating comments. And we can actually, uh, through, so it could be through just being with the breath or it could be with something like metta, which also brings in the heart quality, we can actually shift away from that and, and go back to sleep. And we may experience that on retreats also. Sometimes you wake up, you have some thoughts. If you go to samadhi, it can actually shift out of uh, repetitive thinking. It's quite, quite a virtue. And then samadhi is really important and even necessary for the deeper insights into these three ways of seeing impermanence and so forth and to really open to the depths of our being. We need samadhi. And I gave that quote the first night from the Buddha. Practitioners develop samadhi. A practitioner who has samadhi understands things as they really are. So there's the possibility of liberating insight. And we can also, I think, learn this very helpful balance of uh, what I was calling active and receptive effort. That uh, I think maybe particularly in our culture where there's a lot of striving and, and conditioning for many of us to really practice samadhi skillfully, we need to Uh, explore that uh, balance of active and receptive effort. And it can take some time. I think that everyone that I know who's done a fair amount of samadhi practice, um, how should I say it, um, has suffered a lot from unskillful effort. (laughs) Would you agree? (laughs) That's certainly been the case for me, that I had to almost like work out my striving. You know, so have patience with yourself. There's a, there is a way in which, you know, I mean, I, I sometimes think that a, uh, uh, to be a teacher in this area of practice means that one is an expert on mistakes. <laughs> that one personally knows a great multitude of mistakes firsthand. <laughs> and it's helpful, right? It's helpful so you can, can, I mean, can somewhat say to others, don't make the same mistake I did. It doesn't work that well. But, but, but uh, one can at least say it. There's something like striving. I, I'm, I'm actually joking a little bit, but I think with something like striving, it's so deeply ingrained, we have to kind of work that out ourselves. And, and, and so this attention to active and receptive effort is a good one. You know, the active effort with samadhi practice is the showing up. It's the working with whatever comes up. It's being as skillful as possible with uh, mind states that are sort of taking one away. It's really uh, having the active intention to track what's going on. It's keeping on going back to the breath or to the, to the object and so forth. Uh, really being able to notice uh, with diligence uh, uh, the breath. Sometimes it's having that, that actively having that closer engagement with the breath where we're really interested in it and can see more. And that, all those active aspects are very, very crucial. 
And then there are these receptive aspects of, uh, which are more about softening, relaxing, allowing. Really letting the breath be there, letting the breath find oneself. And again, very, this, I mean, this is wonderful for samadhi practice. It's beautiful teaching for life in general, right? This balance of active and receptive effort is, really applies to so many, uh, so many areas of life. And so some other aspects of receptive effort might be to really, whatever is happening, try to enjoy the moment. Another might be to open to the mysterious aspect of how samadhi works. It is mysterious. One moment we can be totally distracted, we stay with it, and t- 10 minutes later, mm, it's like that. You probably know that. And so to stay with it. Sometimes when, when uh, for me, the practice hasn't been flowing as well or I'm a little bit stuck, I actually start with the intention at the beginning of the session May I just be with the mystery of how this unfolds. It's a a really a calling for this more receptive effort to be there. And as we work with that, there can be kind of a lessening of the, uh, we learn how to be with the breath or be with experience without so much of a doing. And in a way, we start thinning out what I like to call the meditative self or the meditative doer. And we, we, and increasingly, as the concentration deepens, there's less of a doer and even less of a separation between the knower and the known. And it starts shifting and concentration or samadhi can open up to something like what we're talking about is this third area, this kind of open awareness. Samadhi kind of naturally goes into that direction. And so that, that receptive effort is also important uh, um, for our practice in the sense that we recognize that samadhi practice is paradoxical. It's like, I want to go deep. I want to go deeply but I have to let go of my wanting to go deeply in order to go deeply. <laughs> Something like that. There's a paradox somewhat at the, at the core of our practice and with samadhi. It's interesting, isn't it? Where I have to let go of the wanting, even though I want it, and that's legitimate. I want it, but I have to let go of the wanting in order to get what I want. Interesting, isn't it? Don't think about it too much. <laughs> So samadhi practice really prepares us, as we've seen in a few ways, for insight practice. And it's really a necessary complement that we can actually have deep concentration without so much insight. And we can, uh, as it were, temporarily suppress what are sometimes called the hindrances, the wanting, the agitation, the aversion, and so forth. With uh, samadhi practice, we can suppress those temporarily and think that we're wise. (laughs) And the insight practice is what's necessary to really uproot. So the the samadhi practice can kind of cover over some stuff. 
And if we don't come back with the inside practice, it's still there and we can delude ourselves into thinking that it's there. I think I, that's a mistake I know quite well, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, my colleague Philip Moffat has a very nice phrase, because samadhi practice uh, often goes into a considerable amount of pleasure as we, as we deepen and even bliss. Uh, and we sometimes call that sukha. Philip has a nice phrase. As you make the transition from samadhi practice to insight practice, you have to be willing to trade sukha for dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to um, be willing to open. You're coming from this, I mean, with two days, I think we've had tastes of that. But we may have tastes of that settling, of more settling. And now we're going to say, oh gosh, I've settled. And now you're going to just open me up, back up to my ordinary mind. Back to dukkha. <laughs> you know, but it's really, we, we're doing so with more tools and more perspectives. But we have to be willing to do that. And, and that can be actually tra- uh, uh, hard at times. When we teach concentration retreats here, and a number of you have done those, we do like, we have nine day retreats and we do seven days of uh, samadhi practice and then we transition to insight practice and you can almost feel the collective groaning <laughs> sometimes. But, uh, so that's what, one reason we just do two days, you don't get too attached, right? <laughs> okay. Um, So what we'll be doing tomorrow is we'll be transitioning to sessions in which we typically will start with a certain amount of samadhi practice. I would say at least 10, 15 minutes of samadhi practice. And we'll do some transition to insight practice. And I'll invite us uh, tomorrow morning in the early sitting to do maybe the first half uh, samadhi practice and the second half your usual mindfulness practice. And so we'll be bringing in the usual mindfulness practice, which is just being with multiple objects. And we'll be also giving directed insight practice that, especially tomorrow, we'll be working with impermanence as a, as a focus. So in a sense, we'll be doing three practices. We'll be doing the samadhi practice, our ordinary mindfulness practice, uh, for short periods of time, and then opening up to the focused insight practice. So a little bit on the distinction between our ordinary mindfulness practice and the more focused practice with these three ways of seeing. With our mindfulness practice, we really learn to be present and see clearly whatever's happening. You know, and some of you know the teachings of the four foundations of mindfulness, and we learn with the first three to be able to be mindful of what we might call the constituents of experience, the, the uh, experience of the body, the first foundation, the experience of a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, the second foundation. Third foundation, really, we could say, is about being mindful of thoughts and emotions. Uh, and we learn how to do that 
And we, we often have a lot of insights develop with, with our, our mindfulness practice. We see our patterns. We see the patterns of thought. We notice uh, our habitual thinking. We uh, <coughs> can have deep insight into the nature of particular thoughts or emotions. Probably, uh, like, like most of you, a lot of my retreats have been able, you know, have been actually hanging out with particularly uh, particular difficult states like anger or self-judgment or fear. And in some retreats, learning a lot about those, really being mindful, studying those in, in some depth. And can, that can be tremendously helpful. And there's also a further kind of insight practice which we'll be focusing on, which is probably more associated with the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is seeing through different, seeing uh, our experience through different frameworks. A little bit, it's, we're not actually doing what's in those in the fourth foundation, but I think there is an analogy analogy that we're really uh, particularly seeing with eyes of wisdom into our experience. We're explicitly bringing in a wisdom framework. In, in our ordinary mindfulness practice, we don't necessarily do that. Of course, a lot of wisdom arises, but we're not explicitly bringing in a wisdom framework. And with uh, the practices we'll be doing, we are doing that. We're bringing in this invitation to see into these three aspects, which are particularly key. They were taken by the Buddha to be the three keys to liberation, to see into these three areas and really make possible... The, the, the opening to liberation. I like uh, a phrase developed by a British uh, teacher named Rob Berbea, who wrote a book called Seeing That Freeze. And I like that. It's not really a literal translation, but it's a very nice translation uh, for insight practice uh, in general, that we're interested in developing a ways of seeing that free, that free us and dependent to a considerable extent on having uh, samadhi practice developed, that we need that to be able to see more clearly. And these three ways of seeing are seeing into impermanence, seeing into dukkha, which I'll, I'll come to in a moment, which we can translate, I like to translate as reactivity, and Brian may translate it as unreliability. We'll say more about that. And then anatta, which is usually translated as not-self. I'll say a little bit more about that, and then, and then focus especially on impermanence. Sometimes these are known as the three characteristics, or the three marks. You may know them under that rubric. And we prefer ways of seeing, because we don't, in a sense, want to suggest that these are metaphysical attributes of reality, but it's more, these are related to three ways of insight practice that help free us. And so we're gonna use that language of ways of seeing, uh, ways of looking, ways of, ways of investigating. <clears throat> There's a nice summary of these three ways of seeing, impermanence, dukkha, and not self, uh, some of you may know from Wes Nisker. So listen for each of these three. Uh, life is hard, that's dukkha. It'll put you through the changes, that's uh, impermanence, but don't take it personally. <laughs> that's anatta. Okay. 
And it's in a way not seeing into these three aspects is what defines ignorance. When we don't see these three aspects, we get confused and we suffer. When we see them clearly, there's a liberating effect. And that's why we're focusing here. This is from the psychologist R.D. Lang. The range of what we think and do is limited by what we fail to notice. And because we fail to notice that we fail to notice, there is little that we can do to change until we notice how failing to notice shapes our thoughts and deeds. So ignorance is actually hard to get at, right? Because, as is often said, we don't know what we don't know. And with with this training and these three three ways of seeing, we're getting at what typically are uh, the forms of ignorance taught by the Buddha as the core forms of ignorance. And again, the, the essence of our practice from the side of wisdom is cutting through ignorance is cutting through ways that we're confused. And I, I, I like to think that uh, you know, in my own way of understanding, particularly in a more contemporary way, it actually can be very helpful to see our practice as very much about seeing through the systematic forms of ignorance that we have. And I, I like to think of us having three main areas of ignorance. One of them is more psychological and personal. This may be related to our particularly family background, our own particular history, might manifest in something like self-judgment and limiting beliefs and so forth. And the second area is related to social conditioning. A lot of ignorance where we think that we are this person because that's what the society tells us. And we don't see certain aspects of our, our social conditioning. You know, and a lot of that can come through uh, forms like gender and race and age and so forth. There's a lot of conditioning around that that can be very confusing for us. And these first two forms of ignorance, I think, are really crucial to work with. And there is also a third form that we're going to focus on in the retreat. You know, and some of those others may come through, but we won't focus explicitly on that. We'll be another retreat. And I do, I teach retreats that go especially into the first. Um, and the third are these more universal forms of ignorance where we don't really see impermanence, where we don't really see the nature of dukkha and the roots of dukkha, and where we have confusion about who we are. And these are the forms of ignorance that we'll explore in the practices of the, next, of the next few days. So let me say a little bit about the three forms and then go into a little more detail on impermanence. And again, Brian will talk more about, uh, uh, about dukkha and not self, but I'll give a little bit of an, an overview. 
And I'll come back to impermanence in more depth, but it's, it's, we can say generally that impermanence is really something that we look into both on a gross level in terms of just how things change on a more gross level in nature, in our lives, how there is arising and passing, birth and death, how everything is really subject to impermanence. You know, um, all the politicians vying for the presidential uh, nomination are impermanent. (laughs) This may be consoling. Um, my talk had aspects of impermanence. I was working on it this afternoon and I had one of those experiences. I was working on it for a while and hadn't saved it for a while and I got a message from Microsoft saying, we are sorry. (laughs) They might have said, you're working on a talk in impermanence and you are about to experience the impermanence of your last half hour's work. And that happened just a few hours ago. So that was interesting, wasn't it? And we were talking over supper. There was a, there was a really, uh, 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 something a little bit like a haiku from, let me see if I can find this, from a, uh, a Japanese a student of Basho named uh, Mazuta. And uh, he wrote, this was kind of a, a real opening to impermanence. Since my house burned down, I now own a better view of the rising moon. <laughs> I can't say that something like that sentiment came up with my file. (laughs) But perhaps next time. So there's that gross impermanence of presidential candidates and computer files and all of us, right? And, And that's something we tune into. And I'll come back to that. And there's also the more experiential, moment to moment, more subtle impermanence that we can especially explore uh, through meditation. And we'll be especially focusing on that. And I'll come back to that. A few words about dukkha. Uh, Dukkha is the Pali word, usually translated as suffering. And I think Brian and I talked about this before the retreat. I think neither neither of us like that translation. I like the translation of reactivity for dukkha because uh, if you translate dukkha as suffering, which is what you'll find in all the texts, it obscures two really important aspects of dukkha. One is that there can be dukkha both when we uh, push away the unpleasant, which is usually what we mean by suffering, and, but we can also grasp on to the pleasant. And that is a form of dukkha. In that sense, dukkha is probably more accurately talked about as resistance to the present moment. And the suffering of grasping is more subtle. We don't see it so much. Oh, I'll just grasp onto this. Oh, it kind of feels good. But if we look more closely, as again we do in our practice, we see that there is a more subtle uh, kind of suffering. And so reactivity brings that out a little bit better. The other 
reason I like reactivity is that using the word suffering can obscure the distinction that we sometimes make between the experience of the unpleasant, which happens all the time, and the reactivity or the suffering. In other words, it can obscure the distinction between pain and suffering, which, which is very, very crucial. Because as sometimes said, pain is a given, suffering is optional, when we make that distinction. That we, uh, and so reactivity can bring that out. And, and uh, we'll also sometimes use unreliability. So it's this, it's this way that we are reactive to our experience. We, and we study really how we, the different ways we're reactive. We try to feel what that's like. We look for it. We study it. We see the, the various forms of reactivity, you know, in terms of body or thoughts or uh, objects or people, whatever. And so we study that carefully. And we also study what it's like when we grasp or when we push away. We look at the dynamics of that. We look at our own personal patterns of dukkha more and more carefully. And again, Brian will go into to more depth with that. And the teaching of not-self of the three is probably the most confusing. Right? And even in the translation, uh, you'll see it often translated, anatta, as no-self, which, uh, according to the scholars I've consulted, that's not a good translation. It should be translated not-self. That the uh, prefix a in Pali and Sanskrit or an, you know, anatta, is very similar uh, to uh, the English prefix a, which means not, like amoral, right, or something like that. It's really uh, come the, you know, the Pali and Sanskrit come from the same language family, sometimes called Indo-European. So there's some similar roots and some similar words uh, in the in the old text. So it, it's, it's confusing off, right off the get-go, as it were, because it's translated in different ways, and people get very confused. I remember hearing a story of a young man who went to a retreat, heard there was no self, left the retreat in anger, dropped out of school, said, what's the point? If there's no self, why should I go to school? It was actually, it's, it's humorous in some ways, but it's obviously very painful. People get confused, and there's some very good, you know, some of you who... No, there's some very good uh, Jewish Buddhist humor on the internet. Here's an example. The Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, there is no self. Maybe we're off the hook. <laughs> anyway, all sorts of confusions. The, you know, uh, in most uh, contemporary psychology, uh, people use, uh, psychologists will use the word self and even the word ego more neutrally, simply to mean something about the organizing capacity of mind and the, you know, the orienting to a continuity and so forth. And uh, even use the word ego. And then in you know, a lot of Western Buddhist terminology, we use the ego as a negative. So it's, it's hilarious, just open for confusion. Brian and I have a similar perspective. We want to look at the, we want to look at the phenomenon of not self in a simple way, 
And I think we want to look particularly at uh, two aspects. One of them is how do we actually sometimes experience life, experience whatever we're experiencing without a strong sense of self. And actually in much of life we do that. When I was absorbed in that writing of the essay, there was not much self. We experienced that sometimes in what's sometimes called a flow experience, which we experience in a lot of our work with music or the arts or being in nature. It's talked about a lot in sports. In sports it's called playing in the zone. Right? There's a sense of there is no self here. You know, we are just a team, right? There's that, you know, like the, uh, for those of you who are local, you'll know that the local basketball team, uh, uh, the, the Golden State Warriors, really have this very selfless way of performing. So you can, after the retreat, go, go study them. <laughs> Unfortunately, their success falls under the rubric of impermanence. <laughs> I should, sometimes I should say, I don't know how many of you follow basketball, but I, I enjoy it. And I, I should sometimes, maybe another talk, I'll, I'll give I talk about my Stephen Curry dreams. <laughs> okay. Um, and so we, we look into that, that way that there can be a flow, both in ordinary experience and then in meditation, we can often have the experience oh, there's just a thought, there's a body sensation, there's this, there's one phenomenon after another without much sense of self. And that's a way to open to this experience of not-self. And some, so again, I think it's more common than we might realize. And so we want to open, to, on the one hand, some, to something like that experience of flow in uh, informal practice and also in our meditation. And then secondly, we want to particularly study where the self feels thick. I like the language uh, which I first heard from uh, Tina Rasmussen and Stephen Snyder, who, who were actually teaching samadhi retreats. And they used the phrase, uh, the thinning of the self, which I like a lot. And there's a way that we thin the self and then we look for where the self is thick. That's a way to make this very practical, you know, very, very simple. And that's, I think, the approach we'll be taking. Okay. Impermanence. Tomorrow morning we'll do some meditations on impermanence. The Buddha saw insight into impermanence as crucial for our practice. And you know, his last words were about impermanence. He said, transient are all comp- com- component, composite things. Keep your practice going. Everything is impermanent. Keep practicing. Those were his last words. And you'll find that emphasis on impermanence is central in so many traditions and teachers. The uh, 16th Karmapa, um, who died about 1980, who actually once, um, once stayed in my house. That's cool. That's another story. But uh, the great teacher... And he made a visit before he died to the U.S. Congress. And uh, one of the congressmen asked him, if you could summarize the teachings of the Buddha in one sentence, uh, what would that be? (laughs) And he said immediately, everything changes. 
an immediate response. Something very similar happened with Suzuki Roshi, the, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center. He was asked to put the entire message of Buddhism in a nutshell, and he quickly answered, same phrase, everything changes. There are lines from the Dhammapada where the Buddha says, um, better to live one day seeing into impermanence than a hundred years without seeing impermanence. You can find similar passages other places. And I think tonight we'll start, there's a chance uh, to remember impermanence that we'll start this evening. It goes, Anicca vata sankara upatava yadamino upakitava niruchanti desang upasamo sukho translated something like, all things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings peace. So there's gross impermanence, as I was saying, everything falls under that. And um, in a lot of traditions, attending in some way to gross impermanence, reflecting on it, is an important part of practice. And the teachings of the Buddha in Tibetan tradition, one of the preliminary practices involves maybe taking 10 minutes, 20 minutes a day and just bringing to mind that change occurs. And also including in that, that I am permanent, that I will die, reflecting on death as well, can be very powerful. I I'd have at one point did those practices for about two years about 10 minutes a day. Very, very helpful to reflect in that way. The Buddha himself shifted from his life, he would say, of ignorance and privilege only when he came in contact. Many of you know the story. When he, ventured, when he came in contact, essentially, with impermanence, when he ventured outside the walls of the palace where he was protected. You know, his, most, of you, most of you know the story. His parents were given a, a prophecy. Your son will either be a great ruler or a great sage. They wanted option one. <laughs> and so they thought, we'll prevent him from being a great sage by surrounding him with pleasure and get, having no sign at all of anything unpleasant. And somehow, on an intuition, one night, he ventured outside the palace and came on successive uh, days or successive evenings, I think, in contact first with someone who was uh, uh, ill, who was sick, then with someone who was old, then with someone, then with a corpse. And the fourth night, he came in contact with a with a wandering yogi seeking liberation. And that encounter, or those encounters over those four days, shifted his life. And it can, it can be like that. We have courses here at Spirit Rock which invite us to reflect more on impermanence, on death, on aging. It can be very helpful to do. It's the traditional practice that one does uh, even at a very young age can be very helpful.
the poet Rilke says, we are forever taking leave. And we don't always tune into that. So we can tune into the gross level of impermanence and we can also tune in to the more subtle level of impermanence, the more moment to moment level. Again, that's what we'll emphasize in our practice. We can see more clearly that there's more of a flux to experience than we realize. The, the psychologist William James said that children are bl- born into what he called a, blo- a, a, a blooming, buzzing confusion. They learn, we learned, concepts. Actually learning the full range of concepts can take up to 10, ten years, you know, to have the full range of concepts that we work with, you know, self, all the concepts for objects, time and space, sense of self, identity, and so forth. We learn that in a sense, and this is what we learn from practice, all of those are constructions that are imposed on raw experience. And part of the ignorance is that we don't see that. We don't see the subtle level where, which is really beneath the level of concepts in large part because we live in our ordinary lives so much in a world of language and concepts, especially connected with the visual sense. And we live in that world and in a sense meditative practice reverses some of the process that we went through from birth to age 10. And we learn how to be able to use all those concepts because they're very helpful. I'm appreciative that people work skillfully with the construction of time and we're here at 7.30, right? But what we don't see so clearly is the constructed nature of our experience. And looking into impermanence can really help us to see that. In a way, we start to see, oh, here's this sensation, this sensation, this sensation. And we can sometimes watch our minds connecting the dots with concepts. Or we can be with the phenomenon we call a tree, right? And we can be there more at the level of raw experience, which a lot of we, we experience on retreats. Right? We just, we're, with the, we're beneath the level of concepts. We're just with the senses. And we can watch the minds sort of starting to conceptualize. We can see that happening. Practice with impermanence tunes us into that. Can really tune us into that ability to go beneath the level of concepts. We can see more clearly. It can be a little bit disorienting when we do that, you know. And so we, you know, we always want to. This is especially where we balance out. The wisdom practice is always with the heart practices. Part of what develops in, in, in working with impermanence, there are a number of, there are a number really of, uh, of benefits uh, of looking into impermanence. Um, let me see where this is. Um, the Buddha said that the first one is that when we see impermanence more clearly, we don't grasp so much. When we see that things are changing, 
and we're and we're really tuned into that, we don't grasp as much for this or that because we understand that things are shifting. And again, this doesn't mean that we're passive or that we don't choose things, but we learn how more how to see impermanence and see that the deepest happiness comes from wisdom and from love and not from grasping onto things. We also, in contemplating impermanence, particularly of the gross kind, we may have more urgency for practice. This is one of the reasons to contemplate death or to contemplate impermanence. It can help us to say, what's really important in my life? You know, as in that book that Stephen Levine wrote, uh, One Year to Live, right? Contemplate, I have just one year to live. It brings the sense of importance to the fore. And that's part of the emphasis. So we can have more urgency and more, um, more sense of... Uh, following our priorities. And practicing with impermanence also can really open us up to compassion. We can see how much, to some extent, we're not seeing clearly and how much of the world are caught in a conceptual, constructed world thinking that it's real or thinking that it's ultimate, maybe is a better way to say it. And we can have compassion for, for them and compassion for us. And it's that compassion which is really crucial as a balance to um, impermanence. Let me just finish maybe with just a few readings that, that bring out that point. One of them is a, a very sweet um, poem, uh, kind of a poem by Gary Snyder. It's called After Bamiyan. And it was written after the destruction of the Buddha statues in Afghanistan by the Taliban uh, at the pla- a place called Bamayan. I think in April 2001, it was right before 9-11. Some of you may remember that. And they were, they were destroyed uh, by the Taliban leaders as idolatrous, I guess, was their reasoning. And um, there was a little bit of a flurry of communications and someone wrote to uh, Gary Snyder, the poet who lives in uh, the Sierra foothills near Nevada City and someone wrote to him uh, a writer who wrote about Buzum saying why are you so concerned about the statues? Isn't everything impermanent? Gotcha. (laughs) Isn't everything impermanent? And um, He wrote back like this, and he, he quoted a haiku from the uh, uh, writer Isa, who lived at the end of the uh, 18th century, beginning of the 19th century in Japan, one of the great haiku writers. Um, and he quoted a haiku uh, that Isa wrote after the death, I believe, of his son at a young age. And in this haiku, Isa quoted the uh, Diamond Sutra. And there are, some of you know there are lines from the Diamond Sutra which are about impermanence. They go, thus should you think of this fleeting world like a drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in the summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom in a dream. 
Right? That's from the, from the Mahayana text, the Diamond Sutra. And um, Isa referred to that, and he, he talks in the haiku about the dewdrop world, referring to the Diamond Sutra and impermanence. So this is what, uh, this is what Gary Snyder said in response to this writer. Ah, yes, impermanence. But this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide or to pass off the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent. The haiku goes, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world and yet. And then Snyder comes in and says, and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. It's really pointing to the way that uh, that deep integration of wisdom and compassion is at the heart of everything we do. And we can sometimes get a little confused or um, knocked off balance by looking at impermanence. So, oh, everything's impermanent. Ah, what matters, you know? But there's always that perspective of compassion that we need to that we need to bring in. Maybe I'll close with a, a passage from Achan Chah. So this will go back to the, the integration of uh, samadhi practice and insight practice. And Achan Chah was a great uh, teacher, died in 1992. A teacher, as many of you know, of Jack Kornfield. And uh, I got to study with him for like a two-week retreat, uh, which, was, which was, he, was, he was a mischievous guy who uh, taught a lot paradoxically. So this is his way of talking about the the unity and integration of samadhi practice and insight practice. And it's done a little bit unusually. So I'll close with this. Stillness is tranquility. That's the samadhi. Stillness is tranquility and flowing is wisdom, being with the impermanent flow. We practice meditation to make the mind calm like still water. Then it can flow. In the beginning, we learn what still water is like and what flowing water is like. So samadhi practice and insight practice are separate. After practicing for a while, we will see how these two support each other. Both being still and flowing, this is something not easy to contemplate. We can understand that still water doesn't flow. We can understand that flowing water isn't still. But when we practice, we experience both of these together. The mind of a true practitioner is like still water that flows, or flowing water that's still. Whatever takes place in the mind of a Dharma practitioner will have that quality. Only flowing is not correct. Only still is not correct. When we have experience of practice, our minds will be in this condition of flowing water that is still. Do you get a sense of that? The samadhi has, there's a kind of stillness of mind that's with the flow. So there's both stillness and flow at the same time. This is something we've never seen. 
when we see flowing water, it's just flowing along. When we still still, still water, it doesn't move. But within our minds, it will really be like this, like flowing water that is still. In our Dharma practice, we have samadhi or tranquility and wisdom mixed together. Then whenever we sit, the mind is still and it flows, still flowing water. The end. Maybe I'll post that. (laughs) Let's just sit for a few moments. So thank you for your your kind attention. And we'll continue today with uh, samadhi practice. And then again in the early sitting tomorrow, I'll invite half and half, first half samadhi practice, second half your regular mindfulness practice. And we'll bring in some newer new instructions at the uh, nine o'clock sitting. Okay, thank you.